Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. And I have a number of corrections pertaining to the last episode, but I think I'm going to save them until next time, because I wanted to try to put out a more streamlined episode this week. Last week, I released a characteristically long-winded episode in which I review the film Don't Look Up. I started putting the YouTube version together, but I wasn't happy with the quality, so I just scrapped it. Uh, But if you're a YouTube viewer and that sounds interesting or you want to hear what I had to say about the film, the audio version is out there, but be forewarned, there are things in there that I think need correcting or clarifying. But on with the show, so Fox News versus the Satanic Temple. There were a couple of relatively recent news stories involving the Satanic Temple that I wanted to cover, and so I figured I'd just bundle them together. Recently, Lucian Greaves, the head of the Satanic Temple, uh, is Satanic Temple going to be the drinking game uh, word or phrase of the week? Uh, Anyway, uh, he appeared on Tucker Carlson's show. I can never say Carlson. Uh, right. So so that I de- that definitely caught my attention. Keep it together, Phil. Keep it together. Talk about myself in the third person. And then last month, the Satanic Temple Drink Up um, of Illinois set up a holiday display in the Capitol Rotunda. It was a sculpture of an infant Baphomet in a manger. And just a brief rundown for those who are unaware, the Satanic Temple, drink up again unless you're driving, is a religious organization uh, that practices a non-theistic strain of Satanism. So it's similar in that sense to the late Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. Uh, Both organizations embrace the kind of dark Gothic trappings and symbolism that people would usually associate with devil worship, but they don't believe in a literal devil. And even though they have recognized religious standing, they're essentially atheistic organizations. I would say the major or key difference between the two is that the Satanic Temple embraces a kind of softer, more humanist approach, whereas the Church of Satan traditionally has a kind of darker, might-makes-right, social Darwinist approach. And the Satanic Temple is also known for its social activism, women's rights or you know reproductive rights, LGBT rights, and of course, most famously, separation of church and state and religious freedom issues. And so you might ask, if they're out to do good, what's with the dark aesthetic and the occult or demonic symbolism, etc.? And I think there's probably a couple of possible reasons or explanations for that. One is that I think the controversial nature of the organization, you know, we live in a largely Christian nation, and within the Christian narrative, Satan is the ultimate villain. He is the enemy of mankind and the enemy of God, the author of all creation. And so what better way to test the limits or integrity of cherished principles like the separation of church and state and, you know, freedom of religion than by seeing if they can endure the rights of a controversial and reviled religious group. It kind of reminds me of that saying about free speech, how the First Amendment isn't there to defend popular speech. Popular speech doesn't need defending. It's there to protect unpopular speech. And I probably mangled that with my paraphrasing, but you get my point. And I think there's a similar principle at work here. 
whether or not the government is willing to acknowledge and protect the religious or constitutional rights of an unpopular or you know controversial group is a pretty good litmus test as to whether the system is operating in a fair and unbiased manner regarding religious freedom and separation of church and state issues. And I think another reason for the dark aesthetic is simply that some people are just drawn to it. They like it or find it cool, you know. There's that kind of dark, rebellious, outsider thing about it. And it might also tie into or reflect, in a way, the fact that although non-theistic Satanists don't literally believe in the devil, they do often embrace Satan or Lucifer as a symbol of rebellion. And I think in the 19th century, there was, you know, a kind of rehabilitation or reinvention of Satan by romantic authors and poets and artists, uh, Lucifer as a romantic anti-hero, etc. And, you know, I think you could probably find precedent or groundwork for that view of the devil in works like John Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, I don't know if I can think of any others offhand, but uh, Paradise Lost is is a big one. Um, Milton Satan is kind of like the original anti-hero. What's that famous quote? I think it's from Paradise Lost. Better to um, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And didn't I say I want this episode to be more streamlined? We're already more than five minutes in, and I still haven't gotten to the clips yet. So let's get to them. Uh, this first one is rather short. It's Fox News' Raymond Arroyo and his guest, Franklin Graham, talking about this baby Baphomet display. And quickly, before I hit play, I just wanted to stop and say that I've been aware of Raymond Arroyo for a long time. I remember back in my 20s, I'd come home after a night of drinking, and I'd watch either Adult Swim on the Cartoon Network or EWTN, or maybe I switched over. I started with Adult Swim and then went to EW. I forget the exact ritual. But I'd come home drunk and often end up watching EWTN, which stands for the Eternal Word Television Network. It was, or it, I believe it's still around, so I'll use the present tense. It's this Catholic network, and it's all religious programming. Uh, at that time, I was already a non-believer or a skeptic, but I used to like to listen to people talk about the lives of the saints, etc., you know, after a night out drinking, and uh, Raymond Arroyo was on that network. And then eventually, Laura Ingram started bringing him on to her Fox show. I think he was or is a regular on her radio show, too. Uh, but anyway, here's the clip. Welcome back to the Ingram Angle. Imagine walking into your state's capital during the week of Christmas and seeing this monstrosity. It's a so-called art display in Illinois depicting the satanic figure Baphomet as a baby. It sits right next to the nativity. It's so obvious what the satanic temple, the group who put this thing on, is doing. They are mocking religious expression and the nativity. Joining me now is Reverend Franklin Graham. He's president and CEO of Samaritan's Purse. Reverend Graham, Merry Christmas. Your reaction to this blasphemous image at the Illinois Capitol? Well, first of all, the devil has been trying to destroy Christmas for 2,000 years. When King Herod sent his troops to Bethlehem to hunt for the baby Jesus to kill him. And so the devil has been trying to destroy Christmas ever since, and this is just another very sad attempt. But, you know, Christmas is about God's love. It's not about the satanic temple. It's about God mm. so loving this world that he sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth to take our sins.
Now, bear with me. I know it's a bit off topic. I watched these clips earlier, but now that I'm listening back to them, just the audio, I'm like, hmm, maybe I'm being too hard on myself because I, as a podcaster, I am, or just as a neurotic person, I am like neurotically obsessed with trying to keep the mic from picking up all my little gross mouth noises and stuff. I'm on a medication that really dries me out. It's like having, you know, like a cotton mouth from smoking pot, but without, you know, the benefits of actually smoking the pot. I didn't notice it while watching the video version of these, you know, clips I harvested for the show. But now that I'm listening to the isolated audio, you know, it sounds like Franklin Graham and uh, Raymond Arroyo were doing bong hits or something. I can hear all the little noises. So it's not just me, you know, even uh, a big a big outfit like Fox News is, is picking up all the little gross noises. Ugh. Anyway. So, gotta get back on track. So, Raymond Arroyo refers to Baphomet as a quote-unquote satanic figure. And in fairness, Baphomet has become associated with Satanism. It would be intellectually dishonest of me to say otherwise. The concept of Baphomet can be traced at least as far back as the Knights Templar. They were thought to have worshipped some kind of idol, a head that they referred to as Baphomet. And one theory is that the name Baphomet may be a corruption of the word or name Muhammad. Um, and I did a whole documentary on this subject, which you can find on YouTube or by digging through the podcast feed. And there were a number of people who I think, judging by their names or comments, were Muslim, who uh, did not take kindly to this suggestion. And it's like... What do you want? I'm going with uh, an actual historical theory. Do you want me to lie to make you feel better? One possible um, uh, explanation for the origin of the name Baphomet is that it may have been a corruption of the name Muhammad. But the Templars became a very powerful and successful organization. In part because, according to some, they basically created the blueprint for modern banking. So they were a powerful military force and they also accrued immense wealth, which didn't sit well with royalty or the powers that be, specifically King Philip IV of, uh, of France, I believe. And so the order was uh, persecuted, put on trial, and according to confessions, court transcripts, rumors, the Templars supposedly did engage in forms of idol worship, and conducted, uh, you know, initiation rituals that some would uh, consider disturbingly unchristian. And the Templars were, you know, an order of holy Christian knights. Um, in fairness to the Templars, I think one theory is that they weren't engaging in these practices or rituals because they had betrayed Christ in their hearts and were no longer Christian. But it was kind of the opposite, that they may have been trying to condition themselves to be able to outwardly perform these kind of blasphemous acts while in their hearts still staying true to Christ or Christianity. And you may ask yourself, you know, well, why would they do that? Well, according to this line of thinking, it may have been a kind of preparedness training in case they were ever, you know, captured by the enemy and made to outwardly denounce Christianity, etc. 
But I didn't plan on going that deep into the whole Baphomet thing. But uh, to try and get back on track, uh, the modern incarnation of Baphomet as this kind of sabbatic goat figure, uh, this can be traced back to 19th century French occultist uh, Eliphas Levy or Levy. Um, and I actually talked about this in that epically long Sons of Sam review I did not that long ago. But Eliphas Levy, or however it's pronounced, didn't intend for the Baphomet symbol to be satanic. The cross-legged sabbatic goat with one hand pointing up and the other uh, down was meant to represent balance or a union of opposites. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that the animalistic appearance, the goat head, hooves and fur, etc., was meant to represent the bestial aspect of man uh, or something like that. And occultists like Eliphas Levy and even Aleister Crowley, despite his satanic reputation, which I think he probably rather enjoyed, and uh, after all, he even took the name uh, to Megatherian, which in Greek means the great beast. Uh, they didn't really worship Satan, but they did dabble in and study demonology, which might not sound like a very Christian thing to do. Uh, there was this idea that you could summon and bind demons and spirits to do your will. And I think this can be traced back to this, you know, tradition or these old stories about uh King Solomon supposedly binding demons to build the temple. Um, and I think you can find that in the apocryphal text. I believe it's the Testament of Solomon. And I think you can go even further back to, uh, to Babylonian Talmudic tradition, where there's a similar story, I think, about Solomon binding, uh, is it Ashmodai or Asmodai, uh, better known as Asmodeus? But yeah, to reiterate, these occultists, they weren't really Satanists, but they drew from a number of different uh, spiritual traditions. They did dabble in demonology, studied texts like the Ars Goetia, uh, the Lesser Key of Solomon. Uh, they studied Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, tarot, ceremonial magic, uh, Gnosticism, Rosicrucianism, etc., uh, etc. Et and the 19th century, of course, is when spiritualism also took off, and there were a number of secret societies, like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and it was usually well-to-do society gentlemen uh, who joined these orders, as well as uh, popular poets and artists and intellectuals of the day, and this is the type of stuff that they would dabble in or practice. And some, like Crowley, also... Um, you know, studied or dabbled in Eastern mysticism, uh, yoga, meditation, that kind of thing. But admittedly, the Baphomet symbol did become popular with people who like to dabble in the dark side. A lot of alliteration there. Uh, the Church of Satan, metal bands. In fact, the Church of Satan made the pre-existing image of a sabbatic goat head inside an inverted pentagram, their official symbol, which they refer to as the Sigil of Baphomet. I believe it was originally created by yet another 19th century French occultist uh, by the name of Stanislas de Guida, something like that. I'm probably butchering it. And I'm old enough to remember being a kid in the 80s during the height of the so-called satanic panic. And you would see uh, the sigil of Baphomet or the goat's head in a, in a pentagram on concert shirts and album covers. I think it was the band Venom. Didn't Venom have a stylized kind of sigil of Baphomet? 
And I think Slayer had like a pentagram made out of swords or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's embarrassing. But I can remember being maybe late uh, elementary school age, early middle school age. And I was uh, I was raised Catholic. And so First Communion, uh, Sunday school, CCD, all that. So it was really drilled into my head that you had to always be vigilant or on the lookout for things that could kind of open up or offer a, a foothold or whatever for demonic influence. And you were supposed to stay away from, you know, Ouija or Ouija boards, uh, tarot cards, any anything occult. And I remember uh, my parents bought a series of Time Life books that were all about kind of uh, mysterious uh, paranormal phenomena and whatnot. And on the back of each book, it was like these big, a series of big but thin kind of hardcover books. And on the back of each book was a um, a sigil of Baphomet or... Um, De Guida's, uh, you know, sabbatic goat head in an inverted pentagram. But that symbol was on the back of each one of the books. And it had been drilled into me so much in Sunday school or whatever, and even at home, which is the weird thing. I grew up in a, a, fair, a fairly uh, devout Catholic home. And my parents were kind of vigilant about trying to keep you know, anything unwholesome, anything having to do with the occult or whatever of the house. So I don't even think maybe they didn't realize or know what it was, this um, symbol on the back of the books. But it freaked me out so much as this little, you know, indoctrinated kid that I made my parents get rid of the books. And I think uh, my one of my older brothers was pissed about it. and uh, But he ended up giving this series of time life books to his uh to his girlfriend's family and i just want to make a quick admission i've actually been recording this episode over a series of days throughout the week and right now you might hear some background noise here in the northeast we're in the middle of what is probably going to be the worst blizzard since the blizzard of 78 i think i've heard some say we might even get more snow than the blizzard of, of 78. So you might hear a lot of plows and whatnot in the background. It's actually um, January 29th, and it's a Saturday. And I started recording this, I think, last Sunday. So, you know, apologies that's taking so long. As longtime listeners will know, I work construction for my brother. I used to say the family business, but my father retired and my brother took it over. And so, yeah, it's construction or more specifically general contracting slash remodeling. So kitchen and bath renovations, uh, building porches and decks, uh, sometimes small additions, replacing windows and doors, uh, all that type of stuff. And um, I don't make that much. I'm kind of the grunt, you know, and it's not like it's a huge business. But anyway, uh I used to get more downtime, and so I would often use downtime to work on the show. But it's a double-edged sword. Um, we've been really busy, which means more money, even though more money still isn't quite enough money. <laughs> um, but, you know, more hours, more money. But the downside is it also means less time for doing the things that I really love and that I actually want to be doing, like working on the show. So... 
yeah, it's just been full work weeks. And I was going to work on the show last night. Got got in from work and noticed something was wrong with my dog. Uh, her posture was off. She was scooting. And uh, hopefully no one's eating while listening to this. But she ended up having a ruptured anal gland. Which might sound gross and bizarre if you're not familiar with the condition. I think it happens to dogs more than cats. But I think they both have anal glands. And from personal experience and from talking to vets, it seems like it tends to happen more with small dogs than with larger dogs. Uh, I have a Chihuahua. I had two Chihuahuas before her, and I grew up with a Yorkshire Terrier. And so, yeah, small dogs tend to develop problems with their anal glands, and they can develop infected abscesses. And if the abscess ruptures, it can be painful and bloody. And it should really be, you know, cleaned, uh, preferably by a vet. And then they usually give you antibiotics. And so my regular vet, did I just say regular? Regular. I remember uh, there was this gas station I used to go to in Somerville. And there was this Middle Eastern guy. I really liked him. But he said, instead of saying regular, he said regular, something like that. Anyway, re my regular vet was about to close. And so I ended up having to take her to an animal hospital about 30 minutes away. And it was actually an emergency veterinary hospital. And it was pretty intense. They had like a flat screen TV hanging on the wall that told you how many animals were in triage, how many were awaiting doctors. There was a crying couple right next to me whose cat was dying. Uh, a guy whose dog was dying. There was a chihuahua puppy throwing up noodles. And it was weird. The place was relatively small, but inside it was like one large room where I'm sitting with my back to the wall with my dog. And to my left is an open pharmacy area where you can see them preparing the meds, but there's no, you know, partition wall or door. Then there's metal tables out in the open for treating the animals. Then all the way across on the other side of the room, there was an operating room with glass walls and a glass door. I guess in case, you know, owners want to look in on their animals as they're being operated on, which could, I guess, potentially be either comforting or kind of disturbing. But it took about two hours before they even got around to seeing her, my dog. So... Yeah, I, I got home from work, had to jump right back into rush hour traffic, take her to the animal hospital, sit around for out. By the time I got home, it was about nine o'clock, ended up going to bed around 10. <sighs> but finally, here I am in the middle of what might be a record setting blizzard. Finally, you know, back to recording. And so I think where I last left off, I was kind of regaling you guys, well, that's one way to look at it, regaling you with tales from my childhood regarding my kind of relationship with or view on the concept of Satan. And so it might seem kind of contradictory. On the one hand, I'm telling you about how I kind of, you know, forced my parents to get rid of some satanic looking books. Uh, you know, because they bothered me. The idea of having them in the house bothered me so much. And yet, on the other hand, as I originally planned on talking about when we got to the Tucker clips, I was also kind of this punk kid who got in trouble at school for his demonic doodles and joking around about Satan too much. But, you know, what a difference a few years can make, especially when you're a kid and your sense of identity and your view of the world is still developing. 
So I'm the youngest of four, and there's a significant age difference between myself and my older siblings, about a 10-year difference between my sister and I, or is it my sister and me? And then uh, about a five and six-year difference between myself and my older brothers. And so I kind of grew up on their music. So a lot of hard rock and heavy metal, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest... But I went through this brief yet embarrassing phase when I was around in the 6th or 7th grade. As I said, my family was devout Catholic when I was growing up, but we became more lapsed after a while. Like, I remember when I was small, it was church just about every Sunday. Then we became more lapsed, and it was just, you know, on religious holy days like Palm Sunday, Easter, and then it dropped off to church not at all. You know, once in a while, my parents, especially my mother, would say, you know, we should get back to church and that kind of thing. And we would still observe, you know, dietary restrictions like no meat on Good Friday, that kind of thing. Uh, But after a while, none of us really went to church anymore. I think for a while, one of my older brothers uh, started going to church again with his girlfriend. But yeah, anyway, as I was going to say, somewhere around the sixth or seventh grade, I suddenly developed this brief kind of uh, renewed interest or enthusiasm for religion on my own. And, uh, or maybe, you know, partly influenced by the kids I was hanging out with at the time. Because I think I was hanging out with some kind of young metalheads, but we, this is so embarrassing. We, we discovered the music of Striper, which was this like, 1980s kind of heavy metal or glam metal Christian rock band. Um, The name Striper came from uh, a quote from the book of Isaiah, I believe. And the band all dressed in like yellow and black striped costumes, had makeup and the teased hair, and they would throw out Bibles, you know, uh, during their concerts. And I think during that phase... I became more sensitive to things that seemed unchristian or satanic or whatever. And I think it was during that phase where I kind of pushed my parents to get rid of the uh, Time Life books with the pentagram with the goat head on the back. Uh, But that phase did not last very long. By about eighth grade, you know, late middle school or ninth grade, early high school, I had already started to become really skeptical of religion And my kind of punk troublemaker friends and I would irreverently joke about Satan. Sometimes it was just quoting like Dana Carvey's church lady. You know, could it be Satan or whatever? And uh, also, um, since I was a little kid, I had an interest in mythology. I used to like to draw monsters and mythological characters. And so teachers would see, you know, back in the day, I don't know if kids still do this. I don't know if everything's on iPads or what now, but... You know, you would just take a brown paper bag at home and make a kind, make your own kind of uh, uh, book cover, and you'd wrap that around your textbooks. And if you were bored, you know, you draw or doodle on it. And so I used to doodle like mythological creatures, dragons, things that did look pretty demonic, both on the backs of tests and on my book covers. So I think that combined with the joking around about Satan led the faculty to become concerned that, you know, myself and my friends were, you know, little Satanists or devil worshipers or whatever. 
And I don't know if I ever shared this on the show or not, but I actually had this really attractive homeroom teacher. I think her name was Miss DeBella. And I'm trying to think how old she may have been. You know, they say kids tend to overestimate people's ages. Well, you know, old people or older people tend to underestimate people's ages. Old people, you know, tend to think people are younger than they actually are. And uh, kids tend to think, you know, adults look old. But I'd say she was maybe in her late 20s or early 30s. And I always try to keep in mind how faulty or deceptive human memory can be. But I remember her being this tall, thin, attractive woman, uh, very delicate, feminine facial features, and she had short hair. And I don't necessarily have a short hair fetish. I like girls with long hair, too. But I always thought there was something interesting about the way, you know, a woman with an attractive face, good bone structure or whatever, the way short hair kind of emphasizes that. Um, yeah, something about that I've always kind of liked. And actually, now that I think about it, as a young kid coming of age, I was also really attracted to, is it Melanie Griffith? I'm pretty sure it was her, but in the movie Body Double. And I don't even think I was a, no, I wasn't even a teenager yet. I must have been sneaking downstairs to watch HBO or whatever the hell it was. And I actually have a number of memories like this where I was a young kid uh, watching movies I probably shouldn't have been watching, once again, not even a teenager. You know, maybe they'd be disturbing psychological thrillers or horror movies, but there'd be, you know, an attractive woman in them, maybe even, you know, a nude scene or two. And I think there may have been something about the heightened experience, you know, the kind of uh, the fear or the excitatory nature uh, of um, watching this intense content. And then there was the further heightened arousal brought on by the introduction of the erotic element, the nudity or, you know, the, the sex scenes or whatever. And there was something about that combination of maybe like fear or being on heightened alert because you're watching this intense stuff and then the this the added stimulation of the nudity or the sex that as a young kid it really you know left an imprint on me or whatever but yeah i can remember really liking shall we say uh, melanie griffith as i think her character's name was holly body and she played a porn star in this movie body double and it was a really disturbing movie there was a psychopathic killer who I think had already killed one woman, and he was, I think he was after Melanie Griffith's character. And this is really weird. I remember it kind of freaked me out as a kid, and it probably wouldn't come off as being too politically correct nowadays. But in the movie, the killer disguises himself by using latex prosthetics and a wig, etc., to look like this kind of ugly, savage Native American character. And, uh, there was an actor in it that looked almost identical to a young Bill Maher, and he plays this agoraphoric, uh, agoraphoric, agoraphobic. Is that a real word? Wow, the opposite of agoraph of uh, agoraphobic. He plays this agoraphobic character who kind of becomes like an unlikely. I don't even know if you'd call him a hero because I think he's the the guy himself is kind of neurotic and pervy. Um, but he has to try to save, I think, Melanie Griffith's character. I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly. But as a young kid coming of age, she definitely left an impression. She was very, can I just say hot? She was hot. She had short platinum blonde hair, uh, was wearing leather chaps, 
yeah, there's another example of an attractive woman with short hair that left an impression on me. And of course, I'd be remiss if I left out uh, Linnea Quigley. I think it's Linnea. She plays the character Trash in 1985's The Return of the Living Dead. Um, yeah, Trash is this very attractive uh, young punk rock girl with short you know, hair dyed red, and she does a strip tease in a cemetery. And man, so yeah, as a kid, as a little kid who was afraid of horror movies and yet watched them anyway, you know, the zombies probably had me on high alert, so I'm in a heightened, you know, state of arousal, and all of a sudden, naked punk rock girl just rips her shirt open. So that really left an impression on me as well. How do we get from Fox News to Return of the Living Dead? Only I could wander that far off. But yeah, well, we're talking about my kind of relationship with the concept of Satan or whatever. But anyway, yeah, so I had this attractive homeroom teacher and I'm doing my best to resist another digression about uh, girls and what hairstyles I like. Uh, anyway, I had a, a best friend at the time whose older brother had befriended this young science teacher. And so my friend and I also became friendly with this uh, science teacher. And coincidentally, he looked uh, almost like a dead ringer for a young, for a young Neil Young. And uh, Neil Young, of course, has been in the news lately because he threatened to take his music off of Spotify unless they got rid of Joe Rogan. And, you know, that became a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to get into that now. Um, I was about to say this teacher looked like a cross between Neil Young and a Neanderthal. Actually, they say Neanderthal, right? Or that's the proper pronunciation. Anyway, Neil Young already, you know, himself looks like a Neanderthal. So uh, anyway, so this teacher and uh, my friend and I used to joke around doing the whole church lady, uh, could it be Satan thing, you know? So this attractive homeroom teacher, I think she was, I think she was Christian, because one time she got upset by some of the demonic looking drawings she saw on the back of, uh, you know, one of my test papers or something. And I think at a parent teacher meeting, she actually mentioned it to my parents. And uh, so this science teacher pops into the room for a second. My friend and I, uh, it wasn't homeroom, but I think we had, might, I don't know if it was English or what, but we had that same teacher for another class, that uh, homeroom teacher. And so he pops into the room recognizes us and right in front of the the whole class and this teacher who is probably Christian he points at us and he goes could it be Satan or he said something about Satan and you know points right at us and then he leaves and the teacher started crying or at least that's how I remember it I'll have to get in touch with my friend and uh, I'm pretty sure he remembers it the same way anyway so that's crazy but to get back to that Fox News clip, which I played about a half an hour ago uh, to finally get back to it. So Raymond Arroyo says that it's that meaning the Satanic Temple's uh, Baphomet manger display, that it's a mockery of religious expression and of the nativity. Gotta keep it real. I think it probably does constitute a mockery of the nativity. You know, it's an unsightly creature with a goat head and a manger. But does it constitute a mockery of religious expression? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there is a troll aspect to it, knowing you'll get a rise out of religious Christian types by putting this thing, you know, in a manger. How could you not know, you know? 
But as I touched on earlier, I think it's kind of the modus operandi of the satanic temple to try to ensure or safeguard freedom of religion or the separation of church and state by testing its boundaries. So I think there probably is some mockery, but not without purpose and, you know, legitimate purpose, I think. And as for Franklin Graham talking about the meaning of Christmas, as I was saying in a recent episode, to suggest that we have to make Christmas all about Christ again is to suggest it was ever all about Christ in the first place. And I was actually paraphrasing a scholar who I thought made a really good point uh, in a, um, a documentary about the history of Christmas I had watched some time ago. Uh, but yeah, they were making the point that, yes, I mean, Christmas is a Christian holiday, Christ Mass, but there's also a lot of other influences, um, everything from probably the Roman Saturnalia, the pagan Germanic or Nordic influence of Yule, and then there's the very date, December 25th, and I think there's a bit of contention well, we know that December 25th was supposedly the date on which the birth of the god Mithras was observed. The cult of Mithras was very popular in antiquity in the Greco-Roman world, and it can be traced back to the worship of the Persian deity Mithra, but I think scholars say that the Greco-Roman cult of Mithras kind of developed its own unique flavor in a way, and it might might have developed some differences and things that set it apart when compared to um, the worship of, you know, the worship of the original Persian deity, Mithra. But yeah, once again, it was thought that December 25th was the day on which the birth of the god Mithras was observed, or at least it was a Mithraic feast day. And so one theory is that's where the date for the commemoration or observance of Christ's birth comes from. And December 25th also marked the winter solstice on the Roman calendar. And the winter solstice was a time of year that held significance for many ancient cultures. And it makes sense when you think about it. You have these assorted astronomical phenomena like equinoxes and solstices, uh, these times of year where there's a noticeable difference or variation in the amount of light or dark. And it makes sense that ancient people would notice these events and want to attribute or ascribe meaning to them and mark their passage on the calendar, etc. And speaking of assigning meaning, I think it wasn't that long ago, I was actually reading how I think St. Augustine in a sermon was talking about why he thought the 25th of December would be or was a fitting time to commemorate Christ's birth. But then there's also the calculation hypothesis and this idea that the December 25th date uh, may have been arrived at by going nine months forward from an earlier Christian observance that supposedly took place in March. It's a whole thing. Uh, and I can't believe I'm retreading it. How'd I get this far afield again? I was talking about Franklin Graham and this possibly erroneous or somewhat erroneous idea that Christmas was ever completely about Christ in the first place. And yeah, in that episode, I also talked about the raucous Christmas of the Middle Ages and how, you know, um, the Puritans in New England, uh, I think 
at one point actually banned Christmas because they found it to be too frivolous, etc. And I made the point that how much Christ you want in your Christmas should be up to you, and to me at least, there's no wrong answer. You know, relatively secular midwinter celebration where you hang baubles and get together with friends and family and exchange gifts, or an observance of Christ's birth, or some combination, which is probably the case with many, I imagine, if not most. Well, in this country, at least, where it's a predominantly Christian nation. But concerning this Baphomet manger display, now as a secular type, an agnostic atheist, I have no problem with the Satanic Temple doing this. I mean, I can imagine or empathize with what a devout Christian might feel or think when they see something like that. But I don't think that trumps freedom of religion or separation of church and state concerns. If you can have a traditional Christian nativity display, you should also be able to have a baby Baphomet display. You shouldn't be able to say it's right for one but not the other. Establishment clause and all that. Now I have to say in full disclosure, I did buy a baby Baphomet mug from uh, the Satanic Temple a couple of years back. I actually bought two, one for myself and one for a friend which, ironically, I gave as a Christmas gift. Um, but I have to say, I'm not trying to diss the artist who did that sculpture in Illinois. I think it's a sculpture, because they're obviously a very talented artist. But I prefer the baby Baphomet on the mug. It's like a cute little more infant-like baby Baphomet. <laughs> Almost looks like a little baby satyr or something. The one in the Illinois display kind of looks like a cross between the Jersey Devil and Watto from Star Wars, or maybe like a baby kangaroo that hasn't finished developing. And then if you like took that and, and turned it into a bog body where the tannins turn it into some kind of leathery mummy, I don't know. But next, as I mentioned earlier, Lucian Greaves, the head of the Satanic Temple, won on Fox News and sparred a bit with Tucker Carlson. Ugh. Carlson. I can say it. <laughs> so let's check that out. It only took us uh, 40 minutes to get here, and I'll stop every now and then and offer my commentary. Well, in case you're wondering if it's really a spiritual war we're watching, here's this news story. The Illinois Elementary School is offering an after-school Satan Club. The local school district is defending the Satan Club. Now, back in the day, as I was touching on earlier, just because we were little, what you would now call edgelords, my friends and I would go around and everything was Satan this and Satan that. So if they had an after-school Satan Club when we were in school, we probably would have been all over it you may have actually have managed to get me interested in extracurricular activity, which may have been a kind of miracle. Lack miracles, dark wonders. Hellraiser 3, couldn't resist. The local school district is defending the Satan Club. It's sponsored by the Satanic Temple of the United States. The club claims it will help kids learn benevolence and empathy as well as, quote, personal sovereignty. We're going to the source on this story. Lucien Graves is with the Satanic Temple and joins us tonight. Mr. Greaves, thanks so much uh, for coming on. So I have to ask, are, are parents complaining that there's an after-school Satan club at their children's school? Some are, but they don't have to send their children to the program. It's available for parents who do want to send their children to the program, and it's there as an alternative to religious clubs that are made to proselytize to children. Ours doesn't include items of religious opinion. It doesn't include indoctrination. 
It just has a self-directed learning program with trained educators there to help guide the children through different activities and may, projects may I that ask, they want to engage in. Where are the Satan Club's trained educators trained? Is there a They're trained Satan through School us. of we've Theology? No, we've, uh, we've got educators who have volunteered with us. We vet them. We do the criminal background checks that aren't required of after-school clubs and haven't been required of any of the religious clubs because we want to be responsible about this. And um, we, we make sure that they understand the curriculum, they understand what we want to do in this program, and that they're able to execute that. So, uh, I love your use of the word execute. So Tucker, as usual, trying to be as snarky as possible. And that's the thing. I can live with the fact that other people have different opinions than me. That's what makes the world interesting, right? And I can be friends with people who, you know, have a different political ideology than me. I, I have friends like that. Um, but what I can't stand about Tucker Carlson, and I imagine a lot of people you know, have the same pet peeve. I think it's natural. I can't stand rude or condescending people. I can't stand smarminess or snark or condescension or passive aggression. That kind of thing just gets my back up. I think a more productive and possibly more interesting approach would have been to ask questions like, what does your organization actually believe? What are you trying to accomplish with this? Do you guys really, you know, believe in the devil? And um, how do you reconcile these, you know, supposed humanist values with um, the, you know, demonic or dark imagery or facade? And I think I've probably already shown that I already know the answer to most of those questions as, you know, we kind of explored that earlier in the episode, uh, their ideology, how they're how they practice a non-theistic form of Satanism, and they're basically kind of a secular humanist organization. But I think it still would have been interesting to, you know, to have that dialogue and see those ideas explored or those questions answered on live TV and see what Lucian Greaves has to say, how he answers them. Uh, because most people probably don't know as much about Satanism, I guess, as I do, and that most Satanists or the big prominent Satanist churches are, well, there's only two I know of, uh, Levian Satanism, the Church of Satan, and the Satanic Temple. Those are the two biggies, and they're both non-theistic, and most people probably don't realize that. Um, so I'm, have any school administrators said, look, I, I know you can like lecture me about religious freedom, but you're a Satan club, but we're not going to let little kids go to the Satan club. Is anybody, or are they just passive like everyone else in America and kind of letting it happen? Well, that's not being passive. That's understanding what the law is. That's understanding what the Constitution is. That's understanding what free speech is and what religious liberty is. And there's a lot of people who express a lot of uproar about this, and they go to the school board, they complain to the principals, they complain to the superintendent, but a school board cannot overturn the Supreme Court. And well, there's actually, no point in harassing so, them. So, so could there be an I hate gays club or black people are inferior club? And the answer, of course, is no, because the community, and I'm not advocating for either one of those things, but the community has some say in what its kids are exposed to on government property, i.e. a public school. So, so you're just telling me that everyone's just kind of going along with it because Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court allowed in religion. They said that not having religious clubs would be religious discrimination. I disagree. I think you can categorically deny religion, 
But what you can't do is give the government the opportunity to pick and choose between which religious viewpoints they'll allow and but which ones they won't. But they, they, they do all the time. I mean, you can be suspended from school for quoting portions of the Old Testament, like immediately. You could be, I mean, what you, I'm trying not to, to use profanity on the air, but what you're saying is ridiculous. We both know it's ridiculous. And I just, I just want to be really clear on this, because to me, it's another example of people just sitting back and being like, oh, I guess I have to. You know, let's have their drag time story hour for fourth graders. Like that, you know, I, I can't say anything. So trying to draw an analogy to some kind of hypothetical racist after school group, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the Satanic Temple, whatever you think of them, is a recognized religious organization. And this, you know, their after school clubs or club is meant to be an answer to other religious after school groups such as Bible clubs, etc., a school allowing a brazenly racist after-school club could be running afoul of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I believe, which bars racial discrimination in schools as well as religious discrimination, which in part probably helps explain why the school is allowing this satanic after-school club. I believe if they allow one kind of religious club, then they have to allow others as well. And in fairness, I think Lucian Grease was kind of just making that same point. And so Tucker makes this point or claim about a student or students, plural, I don't know, getting immediately expelled for quoting the Old Testament. And I looked it up and I did find a few instances of university and high school students getting in trouble for posting Bible verses or passages that seem to denounce homosexuality or posting Bible quotes that are targeted at school LGBT clubs, etc., me personally, I don't have a problem with students expressing their faith in school as long as it's not targeted at other students in the form of a denouncement of their sexual orientation. Um, you know, and, and then it gets tricky because at what point does an expression of faith in school, you know, become you know, become proselytizing. How much is that covered by the First Amendment or whatever? I don't know. Which is probably in part why they have these after-school religious clubs, because it kind of gives students a place to congregate and, you know, freely express their faith on school grounds, but without imposing on the boundaries of other students. And you're confirming that everyone feels that way. They kind of have to go along with it for some reason. Well, people get upset about it, people like you, and they don't reconcile their viewpoints on free speech and religious liberty. I don't know what you're suggesting. I don't know if you're suggesting if the school board should say, no, this is not allowed and we're going against the Supreme Court ruling that what says what religions are What I'm saying is you ought to be allowed to quote the New Testament out loud in school if, I mean, if we're going to apply the standard, which I suppose I'd be happy to live under, we have to apply it equally, but it's not applied equally, as you know. And I suppose, I mean... Have you been in touch? I don't, I don't or, know the New Testament story you're speaking of, but Old we would Testament. defend anybody's right to practice right. their but religion. This, and I, we're and, not asking for other religious clubs to be taken out. Look, we're I'm not even for a, equal access. Right, and I'm just saying the school would not provide that if it were an expression of Orthodox Christianity, as you know. Um, but Lucien Graves, I appreciate your coming on tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And so there's yet another boatload of passive-aggressive, intellectually dishonest crap from Tucker Carlson. Tucker's kind of talking past him, but both of them seem to agree that what's important is that there's fair and equal treatment, that there's some kind of parity, that if one religion is allowed into school and given representation, then the other or another should be treated the same way. Um... 
But then Tucker moves the goalpost, and he he assumes uh, that Lucian Greaves knows that Christianity won't receive fair treatment in schools. Care to offer any numbers? How many instances? How many schools are we talking about? Uh, I'm sure there are a few instances, and if Christianity isn't being treated fairly, I think that's wrong. But I'm sure there's plenty of schools out there where Christianity is doing just fine, um, if not receiving preferential treatment. I looked it up, and apparently there's currently more than 15,000 Bible clubs operating in American schools nationwide right now. And I'll admit, as a non-believer... I don't really care. It doesn't bother me that there's Bible clubs out there. I actually think it's kind of nice as long as other kids aren't being indoctrinated and faculty and administrators aren't showing um, an unfair bias to one religion, which I think the Constitution actually forbids. I believe administrators aren't supposed to exhibit religious bias within their official capacity. And at the same time, in fairness, I think the flip side is just because a student walks into a school building, it doesn't mean they surrender all their First Amendment rights and their freedom to religious expression. Uh, But it gets dicey, you know. Uh, How do you handle religious expression in school? What guidelines do you or can you put in place, etc.? And once again, I think maybe these after-school religious clubs kind of act as a, at least a partial solution to that question, because once again, it it gives students a place to congregate on school property uh, and express their faith, as I said, but without imposing their faith on other students. So once again, to reiterate in closing, I have no problem with the existence of after-school Bible clubs as long as other faiths and religious organizations, including the Satanic Temple, are offered equal treatment or equal representation, especially since kids aren't being forced to go to these or join these clubs. Well, they might be by their parents. But, you know, so it's not like Christian kids are being forced into uh, this satanic after-school group. It's probably parents who are kind of uh, secular humanists who are into the whole satanic temple thing and they're, you know, they're sending their kids there. So it's not like Christian kids are being indoctrinated into uh, Satanism. But given the circumstances, you know, you have a very limited time in the talk. It's a short segment and you have Tucker trying to, you know, run you over. I thought Lucian Greaves did a good job and he held his own and he came off sounding uh, intelligent and knowledgeable. And in fact, at least within the context of that brief exchange, he came off sounding like he knew and cared more about the Constitution and religious freedom than Tucker. But one more thing, one more thing, my really bad Columbo impersonation. It's funny, years ago when I first found out about the Satanic Temple, I covered them on the show and I kept mistakenly referring to it as the Temple of Satan. And I joked that that kind of sounds cool. Maybe I should start my own organization. But uh, I felt bad. I was saying how I, I liked Lucian Greaves. I thought he had a cool appearance. And I was wondering out loud if he was wearing two different contact lenses like Marilyn Manson. And he replied on Twitter that no, his eye was actually scarred 
when he was younger, but he was glad it could pass as a fashion statement. And, uh, and I was like, oh, shit. But he was actually really good about it. And to this day, there's still people liking that tweet from him and uh, replying to it. Uh, so I'm like repeatedly reminded of my awkward faux pas. Uh, but anyway, you know, with that, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, I can talk. Uh, you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and help support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. <laughs> <laughs>